In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And in Vinepair's New York City headquarters, I'm Tim McCurdy. And this is the Vinepair Podcast, Friday edition. Tim, been a week. We've released the uh, Vinepair 50. Always an exciting week here in the uh, in the company. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I just want to say on behalf of the Vinepair editorial team here, uh, a huge congratulations to all the talented individuals featured on this year's list. It's the second year we're doing this. And yeah, for, for anyone listening who hasn't checked that out, it went live yesterday on Thursday morning. Um, yeah, head over there and just familiarize yourself with some of the um, leading innovators and thinkers and operators in the drinks industry. Yeah, it's, a, it's always great because I love opening these lists because I'm, you know, take you behind the scenes here. I'm really not a part of this process. And it's always great because I look at the list. And I'm like, I know who five of these people are or maybe 10 in a given, you know, on this list, maybe. And so it's a great opportunity for me even to learn a lot about people who are doing all kinds of incredible work in and around the beverage alcohol industry. So, yeah, it's a it's it's definitely a, a must read. We'll, we'll link it here in the show notes, too, if you haven't had a chance to navigate over there. But uh, speaking, Tim, of stuff on the site, we ran, a, a, I think, a really fascinating article by Vinepair contributor Aaron Goldfarb last week that raised a really – a question I, I have to admit it, it never even considered, which is, you know, functionally, will there be a classic non-alcoholic cocktail? And, and I think as Aaron laid out in the piece, he's not talking about your, you know, virgin Bloody Marys and daiquiris and stuff like that, which are pretty ubiquitous. But a drink that is created from conception as a non-alcoholic drink that becomes a bar staple. And Tim, in some ways, you're you're the cocktail expert among the two of us. Like, I, take take me through your thoughts when you were kind of looking at this piece and and some of the first things that jumped out to you. Yeah, like you, I think it's a really interesting question and not something I'd considered before either. Um, you, I think the first reaction immediately is like this seems like something like yeah this should actually happen and maybe it's surprising that this hasn't happened sooner given how popular non-alcoholic cocktails have become Mm -hmm. and given the proliferation of you know spirit alternatives that seem to be specifically geared for actual categories right like non-alcoholic gin or the gin alternative or the bourbon alternative so i do think it is surprising that this hasn't happened whether I think it actually will happen again is probably something we will get into in today's discussion. But I have some yeah. other thoughts there. But yeah, I think it's a, a very interesting question. And I think it's a fascinating question for, for a multiple of reasons, and, and some of which Aaron gets into in the piece, and some of which I think we can you and I can elaborate on here. One of them, I think, is that the to to this point, the NA cocktail movement has largely, I would say, been driven by a well, I think it's been driven by two things. One, right? Like there, there is decidedly a group of people who want to be able to go to bars and have an experience that feels adult, feels mature, feels sophisticated, and doesn't involve alcohol. And how big that audience is is a question that everyone is sort of trying to pin down. It's really kind of difficult to answer without because. That answer can depend on, you know, are you looking at people who never drink alcohol, people who only rarely drink alcohol, or people who might, in a given setting, be open to drinking alcohol, but might be just as happy or even slightly happier with a really good, interesting, 
drink that just happens to be non-alcoholic. So there's that piece of it, right? There's everyone is sort of trying to figure out what this market looks like and how big it is and what yeah. it what its dimensions are in a lot of ways. And I think you also have, and this is I think a piece that a part of it that is really important to understand too, a growing number of beverage industry professionals who are themselves sober but want to feel connected to the industry. And while those people can and do operate very effectively in spaces that are centered around alcohol, they work as bartenders and servers and sommeliers and all that stuff. I don't doubt that for a lot of them, it would be as or more exciting to also feel like they had a lot of space to work in a category where they themselves are at the moment in non-alcoholic beverages. And that I think is the other piece of it, because I think the, that you need both pieces. You need really talented, creative, and sort of driven people looking to make interesting non-alcoholic cocktails. And of course, you need an audience for those things. And I'm wondering, you know, Tim, A, does that sound right to you? And B, kind of which of those two do you see as being further along? Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying there. I think all all of those different factors coming into play. I, I'm tempted to say the latter, and that, you know, this movement that we've seen um, of, of more and more industry professionals deciding that maybe they're taking a break from drinking or they're choosing not to drink for whatever reason they might want to, right? And that break could be a couple of years or it yeah. might just be, you know, a month or whatever. Or it might be hopefully for the rest of their life if that's the decision that, you know, people wish to take and the path that they want to go down. So I do think that anecdotally, that seems to have been a movement that's gaining steam in recent years. I was at Tales of the Cocktail, the um, Tales of the Cocktail Festival last year in New Orleans. Um, For anyone listening who's not familiar with that, it's kind of the biggest, at least here in the US, annual gathering of bartenders and, and, and basically, yeah, cocktail professionals and spirits brands in the country. And that's been gaining steam, you know, for for you know, a long time now. But within that festival, there were morning runs devoted to, you know, people run by a group of sober bartenders and, you know, discussions and seminars about sobriety and, you know, non-alcoholic brands there, spirits alternatives had a, a presence there too. So I think that speaks to the fact that more and more these conversations are being had this is happening within the industry. It's probably easier now than it's ever been to be a bartender, but not actually decide to imbibe yourself, at least imbibe alcohol. So I think because of that, and then another thing I would add in too is that this isn't a new trend, but in recent years, we have seen a lot of bars go down the route of preparing proprietary ingredients uh, whether it's like syrups and obviously syrups and things are have been there for a long time in tiki culture and that style of drinks but using proprietary ingredients and maybe coming up with five or ten for each new menu that launches Mm -hmm. and so that approach to making those things i think also influences non-alcoholic cocktails so i think that all coming together to your point yeah i think all of the factors you mentioned, but in my mind, they speak to maybe the ones that um, have been really pushing this along. Yeah. So so to come back, though, to one of the, the the real questions that Aaron's piece raises, which is not just, you know, to be clear, not just 
are non-alcoholic cocktails on the rise or here to stay or whatever way you might peg it in a different world. He's really curious, like, is there going to be a NA cocktail that is, again, kind of created as an NA cocktail, not a NA version of an existing cocktail that is becomes somewhat ubiquitous that you could find on cocktail lists from coast to coast or however you want to think about what ubiquity means for a classic cocktail. And I think that that's, there are two possible limitations or obstacles that any cocktail would have to clear, at least two, I guess I should say. The first of them is a little bit what you were hinting at, which is that for a lot of bars that I've seen that are really leaning into NA cocktails that are really trying to offer interesting, unique, and creative options to people who are are not drinking at any given moment, they do so, and I think not incorrectly, via a lot of in-house work, right? There are a lot of syrups. There's a lot of uh, tinctures. There's a lot of infusions of various things. There's fresh juices, etc. And those things are all really good. They're also really hard to replicate around the country. You know, a lot of what makes classic cocktails or trendy cocktails take off is that almost every bar stocks the ingredients already. That's what makes it really easy for someone to pick up a Naked and Famous and put it on their list because they already have the ingredients or a paper plane or even an espresso martini. And if your really delicious NA cocktail includes three ingredients that are laborious to make and you make in-house and are not something that someone can just stock off the shelf or whatever, it's going to be harder for them to pick up that drink. It just is the reality of things. It's the reason why, you know, as you mentioned, the tiki category, it's the reason why, like, really and truly doing that, a bar has to invest a lot into it. And it's why, I mean, not just money-wise, but time-wise and labor-wise. And it's why that, you know, there's a lot of delicious tiki cocktails that I won't order in a lot of good bars because I don't think they're, they're not designed to do that. They're designed to make other kinds of great cocktails. And I do think that that's one big obstacle. The other one, and and where I almost want to spend more time, but I, but I want to kind of just throw it out here for you to respond to first, is that I think the NA spirits category is having uh, a little bit of a challenge that I'm going to compare, and maybe this will get some angry emails, I apologize, podcastofvinepair.com, though, if you want to <laughs> yell at me. I think it's struggling not struggling. I think it's facing some of the same challenges that some of the early meat alternative products faced, which is that when you are trying to be a substitution or an alternative for an established category, be it spirits, be it meat, one natural inclination is to say, well, here are all of the things that you like drinking or like eating, and you can have our product in the place of the spirit or meat that you would normally have there. So here's a veggie burger. Here's tofu bacon. Here's, you know, a vegetarian sausage, etc. Here's uh, alcohol-free gin. Here's alcohol-free bourbon, etc. And the problem with that to me is that you're both making an argument against a category that is, you know, really well understood and, and beloved by lots of people. And where up until relatively recently, you just... It was pretty hard to really truly say that you, the difference was indistinguishable. Now, I think where some of the alternative meats have gotten recently, at least in my opinion, in certain applications, it is pretty hard to tell the difference. And that's an achievement. You know, not, we're not here to talk about that particularly, but I think it's worth noting. I don't think that any of the NA spirits that I've had 
are really and truly mistakable for their alcoholic version, even though some of them I think are very well made and can function in the right setting correctly. But what I think it will take for some of this stuff to take off more truly is for these companies or for these whatever we call them, I'm not going to call them spirits, but for these, you know, drinks, for lack of a better word, is to find their own spot that is more about what flavors are in there and what they are than about how they compare to something else. Does that make sense? Right. So so you're saying essentially here, like, is it better to have a gin alternative or is it better to have an ingredient like, I'm just going to say seed lip because they've been around for a hell of a long time and those are are more or are less specific in in their use case scenario, right? Because they have yeah. names that don't really exactly tell you exactly what, you know, exactly what's going on there. So your your question here is like, which one is ultimately better for non-alcoholic drinks in general um, and which one is better for or which one helps us get to this place where we may or may not have a modern classic non-alcoholic cocktail is that what you're saying yeah and i think i think to elaborate really quickly because i realized I, I sort of alighted over something that's important to say i think that one of the things that helps drive the success of cocktails in their spread is is of course the quality of the drink of course it's the appeal of the drink visually etc but some of it is also like you know, you're going to get if you're especially if you're including an ingredient that is specific, you're going to get some additional momentum from those producers, right? So if you're including Amaro Nonino in your paper plane, well, the people at Amaro Nonino are going to be, you know, they're going. Of course, they're going to get behind it. Like they're going to promote that cocktail. They're going to activate, you know, their bartenders that they know, etc. And I think that what uh, a one one path forward for a true classic and a cocktail is going to be, of course, to engage with with some of the products that are already on the market. And I think to do so in a way that really accentuates what makes them good and not so much about like, because I think a lot of what you see right now is here's your way to make the drink you already know with alcohol and substitute out, you know, the spirit for something else. And mm-hmm. it's the same. Thing. And it's just, it's just not, you know, it, they can be really good, but I think the, the more you steer into this is something different as opposed to here is as close to a like for like substitution as we can manage. I think it will be better for the category and it will inc- increase the chances that that cocktail gets traction because it won't be seen as purely an alternative. It might well be something that people find delicious and enjoyable to drink regardless of how they feel about drinking alcohol. That's really the goal, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think you know, to, to, to way back at the beginning of the other two points you were making there before, you know, those house-made preparations, and I bring this up because it's like, if if an, if there is going to be a modern classic non-alcoholic cocktail, it needs to taste pretty much the same every time, right? Yeah. And if it includes a syrup or all these different things, chances are one bar is going to make it different to the other unless we crack this formula and come up with something that tastes so good that it's like, this is perfect, it doesn't need fixing, right? Yeah. Um, which I'm maybe a little bit more skeptical about. And also just, by the way, these ingredients are generally perishable so they won't last for a long time and chances are you might have some wastage there which means more bars are probably going to be less willing to have them on hand unless they see that they sell a lot of these drinks so i think that was something to add there 
on the on the spirit alternatives front i'm kind of in two minds um because again i think for for this thing to happen or for there to be a creation of a truly incredible non-alcoholic uh cocktail to your point i don't think it's ever something that emulates a cocktail that we know um for example, I did dry January this year. Well, most of January. You know, I decided to finish a little early. <laughs> you know, I figured it was like kind of like February. I'll take my 28 days this month instead. But um, gotcha. I was, so I was like, okay, well, how can I make a non-alcoholic martini? Like, does it exist? Can it be done? I know there's people out there that have tried this too, many people. And so then I did actually go down this rabbit hole of the nitty gritty of, I'm like, if I'm using a majority part of non-alcoholic gin, I don't really have anything I can sub in for vermouth, but actually if I use a quarter ounce, by the time I've stirred the cocktail and diluted it, it probably still classifies it under the legal definition of non-alcoholic, even though it has a trace in there, right? Sure. And it just wasn't the same. It didn't hit in any of the same ways. And yeah, there's a whole different, there's a number of different reasons for that. But one of the main ones is it doesn't have booze in it, right? So it's very underwhelming experience. So I agree with you. This needs to be something that's completely new. And that's also, you know, that also makes it worthy of the modern classic name terminology. But when it comes to the the spirit alternatives themselves, I found personally that I gravitate more toward the ones that are like, this is your gin alternative. This is the rum. Because first of all, it kind of helps you assess the quality, like how true sure. to the flavor profile of this ingredient that I know is this. But then two, I think just as like, for me personally anyway, you need that first stepping stone, right? Or you need some guidance, like you need to start somewhere. So if you say, okay, I'm going to start with this Aperol alternative or Campari alternative, that's a great building block um, to jump off or, you know, that's a that's a great place to start, basically. Yeah, well, and I think you kind of get at a point here that that's that's worth noting is even if there are good alternatives out there for certain base spirits like gin, rum, whiskey, whatever, part of the limitation in a bartender's arsenal right now is that there are not alternatives for all these other kind of flavored liqueurs and things like that 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 we use as the sort of building blocks for cocktails, right? You know, whether it's vermouth, as you mentioned. You know, Amari, Amari, Campari, uh, Aperol, you know, all the various things that people use to create cocktails, you have a necessarily limited palette if you're looking at already assembled flavor components for um, an NA cocktail, right? And that's why you see, as you we've been talking about, you see a lot of in-house made flavor modifiers, syrups, etc., you see a lot of fruit juices, which, you know, are fine. But again, you know, the category of there's a lot of great cocktails and a lot of people like drinking cocktails and they don't necessarily want it to be three different fruit juices. Setting aside sweetness, just in general, that may not be the flavor profile that everyone is looking for and has been, unfortunately, where a lot of NA drinks in the past have kind of ended up, right? They've been, they've basically been fruit juice mixtures with, uh, you know, soda water, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, having been the person who made and served a lot of those in my time. And... I will say that I think getting interesting bitter flavors into NA cocktails, getting um, sourness that's not sort of citrus sourness in, all these things are big challenges. But again, it's where this whole conversation about you need both an audience, a, a large audience on the purchasing end, and also 
uh, cohort of engaged bartenders to really play with things it, as these ingredients come online, because they are coming. I mean, more and more of these things are being, you know, trialed, put into the market. Obviously, some of them are good. Some of them are not. It's kind of a grab bag, like, to be fair, spirits in general, to some extent. And we're at this kind of early stage of the growth of this category, potentially. But so I guess maybe what I mean is, um, to modify my comments from before, it's not that I think that, oh, a gin replacement is bad, or a rum replacement is bad. As you said, Tim, there's a real value to everyone to have some idea of how to categorize this NA spirit, and giving them a proxy for the you know, the, the, the normal or kind of classic alcohol based spirit is, is a way to give people ideas of how to use it. It's more that we have to expand beyond just base spirits to give people the, like I said, the sort of palette to work with, to create interesting drinks, because that's really, I think where the NA cocktail movement right now can't compete. They just don't have the flavor resources that a bartender who is making a you know, a spirited cocktail can. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with all the points that you're making there too. Um, and w- while you were speaking about that as well, or through the course of this conversation, it did remind me of a, a conversation that you and Adam had had about this before. And perhaps Joanna was there too, or it might have been just before Joanna joined the podcast um, about the non-alcoholic spirits category, right? And Adam had at that point basically I think he shared a quote from a bartender off the record who was saying like, look, this is the most expensive flavored water you're ever going to have in your life. Um, And I actually on, on Vinepair's side every year in January, I review the non-alcoholic spirits alternatives for us. So it's been interesting for me to watch the category grow. And I would say that a few years ago, that comment did ring true, Uh but more and more, the, the the newer and more exciting products that I've come across, um, they're doing two things to really make up for the loss of alcohol. And I think it's super smart. So a lot of them will include something like ginger or something with a little bit of heat so that yep. when you taste them neat, it kind of provides that burn on the palate that you might be used to from alcohol. And I'm like, it's also a, a delicious flavor for using something like ginger, even a very small quantity. Um, But the other thing that we're seeing, too, that I think has been really helpful and, again, will help us get to this point where this drink can maybe happen is producers addressing the fact that alcohol brings body and texture to spirits. And that's the piece of the jigsaw jigsaw, that, that, that gives these things value beyond a flavored water, right? Because if it's just a flavored water, like that does then seem start to seem like a bit of a scam, even if a lot of money and time goes into producing these spirits uh, or non-alcoholic spirits. Um, but yeah, that texture and that weight component, I'm seeing a lot of brands do a really good job of, a job of addressing that. And again, that with those ingredients and with that starting to happen, when you taste a drink made with that, it does feel more like a cocktail rather than a fruit punch or yeah. a, a, a complex punch. But yeah, basically something like that. Um, is exactly. that something you've tasted yourself or encountered or had that problem yourself too? Yeah. I mean, I think in the whole of the NA category with 
you know, a particular emphasis on spirits and wine, which are just higher in alcohol normally than beer, the lack of the viscosity that alcohol provides is more readily apparent in a lot of these products and can only really be, you know, you can, you can achieve higher viscosity in your drink through a variety of means. You know, I think unfortunately for me with a lot of the wine I've tasted, it's come through the addition of fruit juice, you know, grape juice or, or other kind of sweetening agents. Cause of course, you know, sugar is also more viscous. And so it, it adds texture, but then of course also adds sweetness. I'm not a chemist or a whatever. So I don't have a great answer for how some of these spirits brands are making their NA spirits more textural. But I agree that texture is a huge part of what draws us to everything we consume, not just drinks, food too. And a lot of us don't think a lot about it. It's something, it's a kind of a constant refrain of mine in one way or another that we we react very viscerally and, and instinctually to texture, even if we don't think about it very much. So it's absolutely the case that that figuring that out and being able to offer a richer texture to your NA spirit is going to be crucial. But it's also something that at the individual cocktail level, there are strategies for addressing. I was actually really intrigued by one of the examples that's included in the piece that includes some aquafaba as a way to add texture. Now, I personally, as has been discussed on the podcast, I'm not a fan of aquafaba. Mm -hmm. I always feel like I'm drinking hummus, which I love hummus, but not what I want to drink. But there's an option for a way to add some texture. Um, You know, there are other obviously kind of uh, texture, you know, egg whites, things like that, that can bring texture to a drink um, that might lack it or, or just might be a little bit deficient in it and that are, you know, fit within the NA category at a minimum. And so I do think that, yeah, it's going to be a, um, a constant, you know, it's, it's a constant sort of evolutionary process and, and process of experimentation on these, on the producer side of, of trying to get these things right. I do think that to come back to the point of this whole podcast in a way, Hmm. I would not be surprised if in five or 10 years we are talking about a NA cocktail or two that's a, a clearly an NA or like cocktail of origin and has achieved some degree of national prominence. But it's murky to me how we get there, other than, as I've said a couple times, increased quality of and variety of NA building blocks for bartenders that are packaged, that are easy to purchase, that store on a shelf or in a low boy or something like that, that don't require an immense amount of labor on the bar's behalf. And that the community of bartenders who are interested in playing with NA cocktails, either more bartenders than currently are interested in it because they themselves want to be living an alcohol-free lifestyle or a limited alcohol lifestyle, or just it becomes clear that there's a big audience for this on the consumer side and it becomes, you know, kind of incumbent upon bartenders writ large to be well-versed in this category in the same way that you would not hire a bartender who's like, I don't know how to make a cocktail out of rum. Like that would be a bad bartender. And we may be entering an era where you cannot be considered a great bartender if you can't make good NA cocktails. Like that's just the long and short of it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fascinating thing to consider and also your point about yeah, it's very likely that we would be able to point to one or two drinks um 5 or 10 years down the line from now, but how we get there is the question. I think that to your point 
being that being something you need to have in your arsenal as a bartender, like the ability to come up with good NA cocktails, I think that's only going to... Th- I can definitely see that happening soon. I also wonder, too, whether, you know, and we've discussed the various merits and otherwise of things like 50 Best Bars, but I also wonder, or another example, Tales of the Cocktail, right? Like, yeah. I also wonder whether in the very near future... It, it's some it's an absolute must right like if you don't have at least two or three strong non-alcoholic cocktails on your menu then you're not going to be considered for one of these awards because that's a state of the that's the modern state of affairs right yeah on that point of how we get there i think it also takes people doing the work right as they say and i think one of those individuals is Derek brown who aaron interviewed for the piece and I've also had him on my podcast, Cocktail College, speaking about non-alcoholic cocktails specifically. And in his book, Derek Brown sets out basically this kind of criteria for everything that a non-alcoholic cocktail should have or, you know, should meet as a drink. And I think now that we have those guidelines out there, I mean, that's Derek's take. Maybe other people have different takes, but... Derek is a very talented bartender and intelligent individual, so his word is generally pretty good on these things. Um, But here's another thing to consider, right? So maybe Derek and other people are doing the work now, but maybe it's the next generation of bartenders who might come up from Gen Z, right? And we talk about Gen Z perhaps drinking less. Maybe it just takes that next generation coming into the industry to, to drive this pursuit to the next level. Yeah. No, I, I think it's it's going to be a little bit of everything, right? It will take some trailblazers. It will take some, yeah, people coming into the industry who are really motivated or or who just, as we were talking about, see being well-versed in NA cocktails as being part and parcel of the job in the same way that being familiar with classic cocktails, modern classics, et cetera, mm-hmm. is just a requisite part of being a bartender. And I think the last piece, and I think, as you mentioned, is true, is that the people like Vine Pair, like some of these uh, conferences, like some of these kind of awarding bodies, et cetera, that that not just that don't just passively recognize what's going on in the industry, but help highlight and drive trends in certain ways. If if more and more of that uh, attention is trained on the non-alcoholic cocktail space and highlighting the work that's being done there, then it will continue to grow. Because I think what is true is that we are rapidly kind of uh, leaving behind the previous era or eras of NA cocktails that were largely sweet, largely kind of uninspired, or were sort of just alcohol-free, like literally alcohol-removed from the recipe versions of cocktails. And I don't think we're going back. Where we're going after this is a little unclear to me, as I said, but I, I do think that there will be it will be, you know, an almost unrecognizable landscape in the NA cocktail space in five or ten years from the one that existed ten years prior to this. Mm-hmm. One final point, just something to add. Uh, been 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 wanting to mention this. I I've been saving this one for the end here, right? Oh, so good. I think definitely we're going to see a progression of non-alcoholic drinks for the better, and it's probably going to be exponential, which is great. My question is, is it actually possible to create a non-alcoholic cocktail that feels like a cocktail, not just a non-alcoholic drink, right? That is so goddamn tasty that if I put it on my menu at my bar, 
and then maybe my bartender friend from one a couple blocks down the road comes in and tries it and he's like or they are like oh my god that tastes so good i need the recipe we want to put it on our menu like can a non-alcoholic cocktail actually ever be that good and that will provide us with the answer for whether we will have the quote-unquote modern classic i'm skeptical at the moment is all i'm going to say <laughs> well that is something to to ponder on as we enter this weekend where uh you know be curious to hear what you guys listening out there think podcast at vinepair.com shoot us an email find us on social media let us know if you've got any thoughts on na cocktails uh the na spirits category or anything else we'd love to hear from you and tim i will hear from you on monday sounds fantastic have a nice weekend zach thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast the flagship podcast of the vine pair podcast network if you love listening to this show or even if you don't but I really hope that you do as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.